Hello, my name is Wendy Myers. Welcome to the Myers Detox Podcast. You can learn more about my site at myersdetox.com. And there and on this show, we talk about every topic related to heavy metal and chemical toxicity and some of the health issues that underlie that toxicity. And so today we're talking to my colleague, Dr. Scott Antoine. We'll be talking about what you need to know about children with PANS and PANDAS. And these are neuropsychiatric inflammation disorders that have a number of underlying root causes and is something that are affecting a lot of our children today and they're being misdiagnosed with psychiatric disorders um, and just uh, are really being put on medications and getting other protocols and medications that are inappropriate for them at really addressing the underlying root cause and resolving all of the symptoms and scary symptoms that children exhibit that have these diagnoses. And so today we'll talk about that and we're gonna be discussing Things, like I said, the, the symptoms related to this issue, what are the, the protocols that actually work to address the health issues and resolve these symptoms in these children? What are some of the symptoms and especially the early warning signs that a child may be you know, kind of dealing with this type of health issue. We'll also talk about, you know, the kind of success that Dr. Scott Antoine has seen in his practice with the protocols that he's developed after dealing with this, with pandas, with his own child and not being able to get help. And, and why pandas and pans is not more Uh, recognized more in the medical community and why that is and what you can do if you suspect that your child has pans or pandas. So all that and more today on the show. I know so many of you guys listening to this show are concerned about your level of toxins in your body and what symptoms those could be causing. That's why I created a two-minute quiz that you can take that can deduce your relative levels of body burden of toxins. Go to heavymetalsquiz.com. It just takes a couple of seconds to take it. And after that, you get your results and then some free videos afterwards that tells you uh, why you want to detox, the best types of heavy metals tests, and where to start on your detox journey. And just because a lot of people know they need to detox. You're listening to this show. You probably know that toxins are a problem. They're ubiquitous in our environment. But what do you do about them? Where do you start? And so that's what I address in the free video series that you get following the quiz. Go, so take, go take it at heavymetalsquiz.com. Our guest today, Dr. Scott Antoine, he is a DO and FACEP, FMNFM, ABOIM, and also known as a pandas doc. Uh, He completed his undergraduate training at the University of Scranton in Scranton, Pennsylvania, after which he completed his doctorate at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. Following medical school, he completed an emergency medicine residency and an emergency medical services fellowship at Albert Einstein Medical School in in Philadelphia. He then served seven years of active duty with the United States Army as an emergency physician, serving as both the emergency department director and the chief of the Department of Medicine at Fort Knox, Kentucky. 
Upon completing his term of service, he moved to Indianapolis in 2005 and worked as an emergency physician at St. Francis Hospital, where he also trained students from both the Indiana University School of Medicine and the Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. In addition to his board certification in emergency medicine, Dr. Antoine completed a fellowship in metabolic nutritional and functional medicine through the Metabolic Medical Institute, which is affiliated with the George Washington University and the University of Southern Florida. In 2016, he was one of only 121 physicians nationwide to achieve board certification in integrative medicine through the newly formed American Board of Integrative Medicine. He also holds a certification in functional medicine through the Institute for Functional Medicine. And he and his wife, Ellen, who also is a PCOM graduate, currently run a busy functional and integrative medicine practice in Carmel, Indiana, where they focus on environmentally acquired illnesses such as pandas. And they have five children and two dogs. And in his spare time, what little there is, I presume, Dr. Antoine enjoys playing the bass guitar. You can learn more about uh, Dr. Antoine and his work with pans and pandas at vinehealthcare.com. Dr. Antoine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So tell me a bit about yourself, uh, your daughter, and how her illness motivated you to, to practice the type of medicine that you do. So I have a daughter. She's 18. Her name is Emma. When she was about 12, she came to me and my wife, Ellen, who's also a physician, and she told us she was having some troubling thoughts that God didn't like her. She's a bad person. She also started washing her hands until they bled. She developed severe insomnia, some loss of bladder control. And we really weren't sure what the cause was. Hit the books. And my wife came to me and said one night, I think Emma has pandas. And I said, I don't know what that is. And she showed me the diagnostic criteria. And sure enough, she met every one. So pandas is pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with strep. So these kids will get a strep infection. Their body does what it's supposed to do, which is makes an antibody to fight the infection. But then the antibody crosses their blood brain barrier for various reasons I can I can elaborate on later, but it then attacks parts of their brain and produces this very similar response in these kids. So this really my big problem was I started calling around when we figured it out and called to a pediatric infectious disease doctor for help in my community. And he said, Oh, pandas doesn't exist and really left us with nowhere to go. And so we remembered hearing about a doctor in New York who took care of kids with autism and ADHD. And my wife even remembered that he had talked about pandas once. So I sent uh, Ellen and Emma uh, to New York. They saw him. He said, yes, it's pandas. And he said she needs IV immune globulin, IVIG. That's a blood product. But when you give it, it reverses some of these antibodies and, and helps. So when they came back, I called another colleague who said, why don't you just give her antipsychotic medicine and put her in the hospital? It sounds yeah. like she's crazy. Great solution. Yeah. And I said, not our daughter. So we kept looking, found someone in Illinois who treated these kids. He gave her IVIG and four days later, her symptoms were gone. <laughs> so it was a big catalyst to me that I didn't want this to happen to anyone else and to have anyone else come to me. And sadly, the uh, parents, usually the moms come to me and they've been told 58% of the time by studies that they're crazy and there's nothing wrong with their child. It's terrible. It's very hard on the family. And 
you know, our doctor was good that we saw that gave MIVIG, but he really, it was very allopathically minded. We'll do steroids, we'll do antibiotics, we'll do IVIG. Um, we really take things from a different point. We look at toxins in the house and in the child and in the diet. We look at, you know, trying to enhance detoxification and really treat things as best we can naturally, but there are clearly times for antibiotics and steroids and IVIG. Yeah, nothing gets me more inflamed than when someone goes to their general practitioner or their doctor or whatnot and are told, you know, after, you know, trying desperately to find out what's wrong with them or their child, that they are then given the card of a psychiatrist or are told they are crazy, there's something wrong, they're a hypochondriac or what, what have you. Uh, just infuriating when that doctor is dealing with a, a limited tool set so I think you always have to look at that, that, you know, just one person does not know everything. It's, it's not possible. So you have to seek, seek answers. If you're not getting the answer you're looking for, keep looking. So let's talk about what causes pandas. So you, I know, you know, sure. certainly environmental toxins <clears throat> are a contributor. Can you talk to us about the, the whole spectrum of the underlying root causes of pandas? Absolutely. So initially it was described, pandas was described and it was associated with strep infection. After a few years, the same group of large group of investigators at the National Institute of Mental Health in Washington, D.C., discovered some of these kids, even if you caught them right at the beginning of the illness, while they still had a fever and their behavior changed, they couldn't find strep. But they started finding other pathogens like mycoplasma, which can also cause pneumonia. Some of them were found to have Lyme disease some Bartonella. But what's really interesting to me is we've sort of taken it a step further in that, you know, why does this weird immune reaction happen? A lot of kids get strep. Why is this not super common? And the reason seems to be that the kids that we see with this a lot of times have an abnormal immune system. So they'll have low immunoglobulins. They're the kids that get sick all the time. They get unusual infections like my daughter. She had various unusual infections as an early as a young child. And what we've begun to figure out in our own practice is we've started really looking at the environment and an awful lot of these kids have mold issues in their home. And one of the things, there's one of the mycotoxins that we commonly see in them called mycophenolic acid. It's a strong immune suppressant. So my personal theory from all the children we've seen is that these environmental toxins, heavy metals, mold, mycotoxins from molds, can depress the immune system and then cause the immune system to be a bit haywire. And I say haywire because they both have an immune deficiency and about 40% of them have a positive anti-nuclear antibody. So they actually have autoimmunity or thyroid antibody. So they have autoimmunity at the same time they have an immune deficiency. It's just things are really off. When you don't find strep, it's called pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome. So we now recognize other microbes as well as likely toxins. That's not in the mainstream medical literature yet. I can tell you I've had a few kids. I had at least one child that we tested him for every infection under the sun, bacterial, viral, nothing came up, but he was living in a terribly moldy house. And when he got out of that house and we used some binders and some glutathione, complete reversal in his behavior, his facial tics went away. So it was remarkable. So the environment has so much to do with this. And I think that may actually, we talk about strep, we talk about these infections, but the actual root cause may be this toxin-induced change in the immune system. And you mentioned ticks. Can you talk about that, that symptom in particular? Sure. So when my daughter got sick, there was one point at which she was having an argument with my wife. And I think she was probably 13 or almost 14 at this point. 
And she was kind of looking up with her eyes. And I said, now you're a teenage girl. You're really bad at rolling your eyes. You're, <laughs> you're supposed to be able to do that when you're arguing. And sure enough, it was probably a facial tick. So sometimes they'll get squinting or eye closing ticks. They'll commonly get lip smacking or a lot of clearing the throat. So they'll continuously. <clears throat> they don't tend to get what children with Tourette's syndrome get, where you get the barking or the really loud or the profanity. Uh, they may have profanity because they're defiant. <laughs> That's a <Yeah>. separate issue. <laughs> but they don't tend to get a similar presentation. So it's mild, but it's there. They also sometimes when you have them stand with their arm out, will get almost a piano playing when their arm is out to their side. When you're asking them to stand still, they'll get almost a piano playing. So these ticks can be really troublesome. So to make the diagnosis of PANS or PANDAS, it's sort of a uniform criteria. And so you'll get either sudden onset severe OCD, and that typically looks a lot like separation anxiety, counting things, lining things up, refusing to eat things. My daughter would not eat any of the meat I made. She was convinced it was raw and she was going to get sick. You'll have contamination worries. Uh, so OCD, and then they'll get a lot of time. So you'll either have OCD and or restrictive food eating. This is, I, I'm not a huge fan of either type of pants, but restrictive food eating is problematic because a lot of these times these kids will feel as if they're going to choke or they'll say, I can't eat food with sharp edges, potato chips, pretzels, not that I would want them to eat that anyway. But so they'll develop one of those two things and then at least two of seven additional criteria. So the additional criteria are anxiety, labile mood, meaning they're sitting eating popcorn, watching a movie and suddenly throw the popcorn and are in a rage about nothing that anyone can figure out. So they'll have this really labile mood. Sometimes they get very depressed. An interesting symptom I've seen a few times is children will unbuckle, open the door and try and jump out of the car. Praise God, we've never had any child complete that act, but that's been something I've seen in a few kids and it's, it's unusual. And then you can also have ticks. We mentioned physical signs and symptoms like ticks, losing uh, control of the bladder either bedwetting or sudden urgency during the day. And if the school is not super understanding, these children wet their pants, which is socially terrible when they're 12. And then they can also have deterioration in school performance. When I give a lecture to physicians, I actually have pictures of handwriting and drawing before and after. And it's rather alarming. These children get this brain inflammation and it's really alarming the changes you'll see. So those are some of the minor criteria, but the initial starting criteria between the ages of three and 13, either severe sudden onset OCD or restrictive food eating or both. My daughter kind of had both. So, and then the additional symptoms on top of that. And it's uncommon to see a child with a really mild case. By the time the parents bring them to you, the average delay in diagnosis is between one and three years because typically they're sent from place to place and nothing seems to help. Uh, a lot of times they're placed on psychiatric medications and those medicines, I think all medicine has its place, but they don't seem to work. Uh, they're discontinued about 25% of the time due to side effects. These children also develop multiple chemical sensitivities, so they can tolerate very few drugs. They seem to do okay with antibiotics, sometimes a short course of steroids, and they seem to actually tolerate IVIG okay. But beyond that, they can react and they do okay with supplements. If you do targeted supplements for brain inflammation, curcumin, whatever, but they react pretty strongly and negatively to almost all the psychiatric medications. So, you know, it's it, sometimes they end up, sometimes it's the right thing for the mom to take them to the hospital if they're in danger or endangering others. Um, but it's, I always am wary to say that kind of, cause I don't 
know other than pharmacology what's going to happen to the child in the hospital. They're probably not going to get a good definitive answer and no one's going to think to use IVIG or even steroids or antibiotics at that point. Yeah, yeah, it's just heartbreaking when so many of our children are on psychiatric medications without really any kind of formal medical diagnosis or brain Mm -hmm. imaging to see if that's actually what they need. And so it's just uh, really uh, problematic. Can you talk about some of the, the early onset symptoms? You talked about you know a whole rash of symptoms that your patients sure. come in with that are they're presenting with uh, you know one to three years in uh, mm-hmm. looking for answers. Are there any indications early on as to that this could be pandas? Sure. So the most common initial symptoms parents will notice is a change in behavior. So defiance, not wanting to listen to the parents. And usually, to be honest, that's because of OCD. So the child has not confided in the parent, uh, but the parent's telling the child to go upstairs to bed and the child's saying no. The parent's assuming it's a disciplinary issue when actually the child's terrified that something's going to happen. And so OCD is probably the overwhelming first symptom and it can manifest, like I said, as defiance, but it usually it's very sudden meaning overnight. So we'll have children that go to bed, wake up in the morning, refuse to put their socks on. And you know, it's people are in a hurry trying to get out of the house, get people to school and they'll just absolutely refuse and develop almost a sensory. It's not right. I can't do it. Something's going to happen. The children will uh, develop an aversion to going to school. They'll vomit on the way to school. They'll get extreme You know, you'll see a child that's in middle school clinging to the parent, not wanting to go into the school. And we see, so typically OCD is the very first thing that would clue the parent off. And uh, often though, they will say, I just knew something wasn't right for a week or two. And then this sudden behavior started. So OCD is usually the first behavior that you see, then anxiety. Then later on, you would see ticks and um, wetting the bed things like that. Um, And defiance usually occurs right away and it's either due to anxiety or to OCD feelings. So a lot of the OCD feelings, I try not to pry too much because really it doesn't matter that there's abnormal behavior, but a lot of the OCD behaviors revolve around if I do or don't do some certain behavior, my parent will die or my sibling will die. And so they're very reluctant sometimes to tell you what the thought is, either thinking that it's so bizarre or that just by telling someone it will happen. And so how are these disorders treated? I mean, you mentioned uh, a few things prior. What is your conventional uh, just roadmap for addressing these health issues? So our process, we have a a five-step process that we go through for most of our patients and we see adults as well. But so the first step is identifying exactly what the issue is. So we try and first make the diagnosis and see if the diagnosis fits. And we have some very, very, very small proportion of patients come to us where the parents will say, I think they have pandas and they just have nothing. They may have attentional issues or something else, but really nothing else. So the first thing is making sure that it it is what it is. And once you've seen these kids, you know that. And then typically we will do testing. If the behavior is very bizarre and there are other abnormal findings to a neuro exam, we'll do an MRI. We don't always have to do that. So typically we will do blood testing and we test the typical things you would test, a blood count and uh, chemistry, things like that. We also will check immunoglobulins and see if the child is indeed immune deficiency because that helps us get IVIG approved if we were to need it. Uh, We also check strep antibodies to see if they're elevated 
it can be an indication that strep was the thing that incited this. We will do Lyme testing, also check for Bartonella, another tick-borne infection that can cause problems. So those are some of the things that we will test for. There are also autoantibody panels that are very suggestive of pans or pandas. One of them is called the Cunningham panel. I don't order that a lot because it's about $900. It doesn't change what I do. I can get it sometimes to get IVIG approved. It's helpful to make an argument with the insurance company. Uh, so once we've identified what's going on, the next thing we do is try and reduce anything that's negatively impacting health. So that means taking the inflammatory foods, gluten, dairy, preservative, sugar out of the diet as best we can. We really can't do that well in patients with food restriction. There are kids sometimes that the mom will come in and say, all I can get it in them is, you know, uh, jello and, you know, rice pudding or something. And you kind of have to make a decision that, you know, you're, you're going to make sure the child doesn't need a feeding tube. So it's hard to limit their diet sometimes. And we say, well, if you're going to do things at least organic, like do your best. <laughs> that organic jello. <laughs> right. But um, so, yeah, we, we try and get them on good food as soon as we can. And then we also look at uh, other toxins. We have people test their water to look for heavy metals. And we do sometimes do heavy metal testing in these kids. And so we're just really trying to remove everything. Once we get laboratory tests back, we try and remove if they have infections or if they have neuroinflammation. Uh, so we'll typically start these kids on curcumin. You can use non-steroidal drugs like ibuprofen, but about 10 or 15% of the time, these kids have stomach issues with them. So I try not to start there at all. And so we reduce those things. The next time things we try and do are optimize detoxification. So what you would think would be you know, green leafy vegetables, if you can, things like that, but also looking at specific supplements that can help unburden or unload the liver for sure. So optimizing detoxification. The next would be supports. We try and support the immune system. We will use low dose naltrexone to do that, choose for a lot of autoimmune things. And it seems to reset the immune system for a lot of these kids. It can really change their behavior. That's a compounded medication. And we will also support the immune system if we need to. Um, sometimes we have to use short courses of steroid medication. Also not my favorite, but you do it when you, when you have to, when the children are in a severe flare. And then ultimately, either right at the beginning or somewhere along the way, if things aren't really progressing, we'll kind of make the decision while talking to parents, because there's no absolute rule about IVIG because it can really be life-changing if you need intravenous immunoglobulin. It is a blood product, so also we're very careful with that, and we only use it in, in certain cases. Probably, I would say, of the pandas kids I see, it's maybe 60%. It's probably a little bit higher in a conventional practice where they're not doing a lot of the other things to address you know, immunity and things like that. So, And then ultimately, the last part of it's a personalized plan. So we do do genetics occasionally. Um, on these kids. And once you get the information and you know what's going on, and that usually involves testing their home and the child for mold, for mycotoxins, uh, once you figure that all out, you sort of put together a plan for how you're going to tackle it. Well, it so, sounds like based on the underlying root causes, mm -hmm. neuroinflammation, immunity, uh, that uh, CBD extract would be ideal because that addresses immunity inflammation and helps the brain as well. We do use CBD as well. And, you know, depends on what type of CBD you have and what the taste is for the child. Even the tasteless CBD, to me, a lot of them have a little bit of something in there that the children don't respond well to. We use phosphatidylcholine as well. So great for brain support for cleaning the cell membranes. So we use phosphatidylcholine, omega-3 fats. Magnesium is a great behavioral modifier, which will help make them sleepy at night. 
we actually have a product in our office that has magnesium and it also has some inositol in it. Inositol, it works great for children with uh, pans up to about 12 gram dose. And that's not a ton of inositol, but really works well to get behavior in check. You can use small doses of GABA. I try, as I said, not to, you know, there are some physicians conventionally that will talk about using antipsychotics or benzodiazepines, things like Ativan or Valium. I steer clear from that. It's not something I would do. I don't think it's worth the risk to the child. And, you know, benzodiazepines are addictive and I just don't want to go there. It's going to do the job. You're probably going to have a quiet night, but it's usually, I would say in my practice, it's not something that, that we do. So yeah, we do use CBD. Sometimes these kids really have taste aversions to almost everything, even the tinctures. So we'll either have parents open things up or mix them in something. And I've had some good luck with low dose naltrexone as well as glutathione and getting them topically compounded and then putting, you know, a topical cream on the child. They usually do okay with that. Mm, So times we'll do that uh, because they just won't tolerate any of the sweet you know, as best you can make the syrups and compounded materials and even some of the commercially available things, they just won't tolerate it well. So you really have to, it's kind of any port in a storm. This is an emergency. I mean, I'm an emergency physician primarily. I've been practicing emergency medicine for 27 years and the last six or seven years now I've been in functional integrative medicine. I can tell you that the controversy that came with pandas and pans had to do with the idea that there weren't, you know, 50,000 patient studies to do with, you know, what you do with these kids. There also aren't for patients in cardiac arrest. There also aren't for patients with who have dropped a lung in trauma. There just aren't big studies. We just know it works and we know that it's any port in a storm. And these kids are in crisis. When you see it, it's terrifying. I usually tell people, uh, and there are various documentaries about it, but a great film about an adult sort of form of pandas is Brain on Fire. It's a true story of Sarah Cahillon. She was a New York Post reporter. I would recommend it's on Netflix. I don't get a kickback or anything, but I would recommend it. It's a fascinating story about a girl who degraded into, for all intents and purposes, looked like schizophrenia. And her parents would not rest and got her admitted and ordered testing. I don't want to ruin any kind of an ending for anybody, but it's a fascinating film and it's what these kids look like. They, for parents, it's particularly hard. Um, you know, one day my daughter's sitting there doing Bible study in my bed with my wife, they're constant companions. And the next day it's like, she's gone. She's just, you look into her face, she's vacant. It's just like a different child there. It's just, it's just terrifying. And, um, you know, we're, we're in the process of writing a blog. Uh, Ellen's actually going to write a blog about the times when you would say there are certain diseases when it comes to mental health, it's almost more advantageous to you to have cancer. And that's a strange thing to say, but when you have, you know, cancer, God forbid, people make a Facebook group, they bring you meals, you know, everybody knows what to say. When this happens, people scatter. That's what happened to us, our friends, our, you know, not our family, but our friends just scattered. There's no support. Um, the medical community doesn't help. And so we're actually in the process of setting up a supportive atmosphere, both in our office. And we're also going to have some online support groups for parents going through this so they can get scientific results. Sometimes people get online and there's a lot of information. You have to be a bit careful. So I'm committed to giving people hope, healing and science. Yeah, and I, I've heard some harrowing stories of, you know, some people I follow on Facebook that their child has pandas and the child can fly into rages and then they're screaming and the the neighbors called Child Protective Services on them or they're screaming on planes and uh, it's just an incredibly difficult situation to, to deal with. 
It is, and there's no rhyme or reason behind it. You can't always attach, oh, maybe they're just hungry or overtired, like it doesn't work like that. It'll be in the middle of, we were having a great day at the park, and suddenly my child you know, pushed another child off the sliding board and flew into a rage and started hurting themselves. It just, it's really hard to deal with. One of the things that parents, if they're out there struggling with this, that I, I encourage them not to do is try and reason their way out of it. If your child believes that there's an elephant standing next to them that's going to take them out of the house, just distract. Take them somewhere and say, hey, let's go and watch a movie. Hey, let's go and play outside. Let's go do something. Where's the dog? Did you see the dog? Something to distract because you can't reason them out of it. It's just almost impossible to do that. And the other, the caution I usually give dads and the reason is from my own heart because of the apologies I had to give my daughter when I knew better six months later was try not to view every defiance as a disciplinary issue. It's usually because these children are terrified. So you have to really kind of look. Um, some of these children will develop selective mutism. <laughs> and they will stop talking. You can imagine how that would get under your collar a little bit if you're giving them a direction or asking them a question they wouldn't answer. What kind of success have you seen in, uh, you know, since you've been working with this population of children and developing these, these protocols to, to help them overcome pandas? So we've seen uh, a lot of success. I can say that, you know, sometimes things are difficult for parents if they're in a house with a lot of mold and the child's sick, especially if a spouse is not particularly supportive or buying into that, it's hard to get that resolved. And if these children end up in a toxic environment with mold containing environment and they're continually exposed, or if they won't change the child's diet, a lot of times that stalls. So we've had great success when parents have been able to do what we need them to do. And We've had at least probably one of the parents I'm proudest of, she she uh, used to work for us and care for our children. And she came suddenly called us one day and she didn't know what was wrong. Described this classic case of, of pandas, brought her son up. And from the second they got here, she was willing to do every anything that I had that I suggested. So they did everything we suggested. They bought a red light unit for their home, did red light therapy. They bought an infrared sauna for their home and did infrared sauna. They did counseling, so cognitive behavioral therapy is really helpful in overcoming OCD. And so all of those things, they were willing to take it to the max. And we treated him for a period of time with antibiotics. I think we might have done a course of steroids, and he just completely recovered. They just were like pedal to the metal all the way to the – and it's hard because a lot of times they came in very early because they knew us and knew something really weird was going on. If you have a parent, it's been a while. Sometimes it takes longer for their kids to get well. But we've had great success in – you know, in any medical endeavor, not everybody gets better, but I can tell you everyone heals and part of it's healing the family and healing the child. So in terms of cognitive stuff, there, there were things my daughter didn't get back. She was like a straight A student. Now she struggles. So likely that neuroinflammation caused some neurological issues that may persist for her. But once she went, got IVIG and went through cognitive behavioral therapy, her total, whole life changed. She's now uh, graduating this year, she's going to go on and be a soccer player at Wright State University in Ohio. So, and she really is dedicated to living every day. But in cognitive behavioral therapy, is something that I suggest to parents too. Um, it's remarkable. They will expose this child to what they're fearful of in very small doses and then gradually work their way up. And that really, really helps. Yeah. You need an expert, maybe it's someone that besides the parent making suggestions also, I'm sure can be very helpful. <laughs> Absolutely, because there's a dynamic between the parent and the child. Uh, some, some of the times, I think the children think the parents are not smart enough to know what's going on. So the mm -hmm. child says, there's danger Doesn't here. Doesn't respect them. <laughs> or, 
the worst cases are where a child assumes the parent's trying to hurt them. That's very rare. Mm. Uh, but when that happens, it's hard to deal with because to get the parent to give the child any kind of supplement, change their diet, take them to an appointment is really difficult. So that's super rare. I think I might have seen one or two cases of that. And usually those are cases that we really try and get IVIG in. And sometimes that takes a little bit of bribery and holding. And if you can get it in and convince the child steroids, that's probably an indication we do a little longer steroid taper. And sometimes that can really pull the child back from the edge and get them to cooperate a little bit. So, yeah. And so I understand that, you know, pandas and pans is really misunderstood and even discounted by the medical community. Is it, is that still an issue that you run up against? So I, yes. Uh, so when this first came out, the problem was, uh, you know, there were physicians that looked at it and said, you know, a lot of kids have strep. Why doesn't this happen all the time? And they also said, look, you're talking about case reports. When it comes to IVIG, there were case reports of four children, two children, one child, 12 children. And they said, look, in order for us to believe anything, we need evidence-based medicine. We need 10,000 patient studies. And what really happened was that set us up for failure. So when I was in residency, evidence-based medicine as a principal came out in 1996. And it basically said you should have good you know, evidence, experimental evidence for the things you do. It's absolutely true. The other part of the article also said you should never rely solely on evidence without clinical experience and patient preference. And we kind of deleted those two things. And so when I hear people that absolutely say, you know, I'm an evidence-based doctor, I won't do anything without a double-blind placebo-controlled study, I always say, you know, there are no double-blind placebo-controlled studies for parachutes when you jump out of an airplane. Yeah. It's all anecdotal. <laughs> It's a very good so, point. <laughs> and, you know, there's really no controlled studies for anything that we do in a cardiac resuscitation in the ER. We know epinephrine may help. Virtually no one that's in cardiac arrest more than 10 minutes walks out of the hospital. But we do things. We do our CPR. We shock them. We give them epinephrine. We do things in the odd chance that they might be the one that recovers. And PANDAS has to be looked at. And PANDAS like a resuscitation. So that's my message to physicians. Yes, it's still controversial, despite thousands of kids, thousands of docs like me, tons of literature. There are still people that are so stuck in, you know, I think part of it, too, is how can neuroinflammation be responsible for psychiatric disorders? And that requires a total change in the way you think about things. And one of the interesting comments the PANDAS Consortium made when they wrote their articles in 2014 was they said, hey, perhaps some cases of adult OCD and it may be cases that were missed when they were kids. And they just kind of left it there and just simple one sentence in the article. And I thought, hmm, think about that. Isn't that interesting? Uh, the other night, uh, Ellen and I were, were uh, watching a show, of course, on Netflix about Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. And as we're sitting there, they said that at one point when he was a teenager, he was hospitalized for some type of rash and then his mother said, you know, he was never the same after that. And we both looked at each other and we're like, I wonder what that was. Scarlatina, scarlet fever. Was that from strep? Was it rheumatic fever? What was, but you know, you, when you think about things in that way, it really, and it gives you hope because you don't have to just say to the person, you know what, bad luck, your child has schizophrenia or OCD. And this is just kind of, you know, we have these medicines, they're not terribly effective. You know, this is just how your life will be now giving them that glimmer of hope and support is what makes it worthwhile for me. And seeing a child recover is just, it, every time it happens, it's a miracle. And it just makes me happy. So uh, just to see it. That's why I love doing shows like this to, you know, give people that 
alternative viewpoint or options that they may not get when they go to a medical doctor that just may not have ever been exposed to this or heard about it or poo-poo's it because they don't have the double blind clinical trials. And so that's why I love to do shows like this. So uh, what can parents do if they suspect that their child may have PANS or PANDAS? Right, so we see people from all over the country. It's our website, I'm not sure if you're gonna give that later, but uh, vinehealthcare.com, that's the name of our practice, and see people from all over if, and it's tough sometimes to get these kids in a car, uh, if there's an issue, you can go to the Pandas Physician Network website. If you search for that, you'll find it. And that as a provider finder, you can find people all over the country, hopefully near you, that can help you. So that's one thing you can do. I think your best thing to do as a parent is not accept a response that does not make sense to you concerning your child. I can tell you, I was a physician before I had children. When I had children, it made me a much better pediatrician. I should say, I'm not a pediatrician, but it made me take better care of kids because I saw weird things my kids did that didn't fit the textbook. They got bizarre fevers that I couldn't explain and had other illnesses that I couldn't explain. So I was able to give parents a lot of grace. So if something's wrong and if someone gives you a silly answer or an answer you don't think is right, find someone else, keep looking. I can tell you 90% of the children that come to me, the parents sit down and say, we think our child has pans or pandas. They figured it out when no one else would for them. And that's something really to that that is important. I had one child not too long ago and the parents were told, your child is having all these bizarre neurologic symptoms because your marriage is strained. But, oh, great. Yeah, that there's no guilt there at all. Yeah, and then, yeah it's all my fault. And, Right. And so usually when these parents will sit down, especially the moms, I'll say that none of this is your fault. And they usually start crying because, you know, they're wondering, did I not take a prenatal vitamin? Maybe it's because I ate, you know, non-organic, drank non-organic milk while I was pregnant, like all these things um, that they've had. But this is just one of those things. We live in a toxic world, as I know you talk about quite a bit. And so, you know, don't accept things. No for an answer. Find someone that can help you do the test you need, and the treatment you need. We know these kids do better the earlier they're treated. And can someone work with you remotely? Do uh, where And then where is your practice located? Our practice is in Carmel, Indiana, just north of Indianapolis, easiest airport in the country to get in and out of. <laughs> but typically we need to see the person the first time in the office to do a good physical exam, especially because there are some scarier diagnoses that can sometimes look like pans or pandas. Uh, like autoimmune encephalitis, Sydenham's chorea, rheumatic fever. Those are all things you need a person physical exam on. After working in the ER for 27 years, I'm super concentrate on the physical exam. I found unusual causes uh, of this that were not related to pans or pandas. So they'll need to come to see us at least the first time. Uh, and we usually can do an appointment all in one day. Blood draw, we usually get them some cream to put on in case they need blood drawn when they're here. And then follow-ups we've done over the phone or over Skype. So you can do follow-ups after that, but first visit would be in the office. Okay, fantastic. Well, is there anything else that you want to share in relation to this topic? I would say the one thing would be speaking to anybody who knows anybody that this happened to, whether it's your sister or your grandchildren or whoever it would be, that the, the parents out there, uh, it's an incredible place of loneliness. Your friends scatter. Uh, I don't know if they think it's contagious and their children are going to get it or what it is, but be a friend of those people and just love them through it. There's there's nothing easy that you can say uh, about it, but just sitting with someone and saying, I care about you, I'll be here, I'll do whatever I can, I'll take your other kids out for some healthy food, 
I'll take your other kids out to the bowling alley. I'll watch your challenged child so you and your husband can go to a, a movie, something like that. I think it's really important to support these folks and that's absent in a lot of places. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's, like I said, I followed a few people on Facebook that their child, they suspected or they had a diagnosis of pandas and I just, my heart just went out to them so much. It just seems so, so difficult. Um, so, Dr. Antoine, thanks so much for coming on the show and imparting your wisdom uh, and insight on this topic. Just your your wealth of knowledge on this is so appreciated. Thanks. And if anybody wants to go, we have a ton of blogs, diagnostic criteria, information, support on our website, vinehealthcare.com. So anybody can come there and start reading. We have some introductory material, some more advanced material, just a lot of information as well as some support for folks that are going through it. Yes, yeah. So if you suspect, if you uh, identify with any of the symptoms that right. Dr. Antoine discussed on the show, definitely go check out that resource. So everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Myers Detox Podcast, where we discuss every type of topic related to heavy metal and chemical toxicity so that you can discover if your or your child's health issues are related to toxins in your environment. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll talk to you guys next week.